This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. Scottish Mortgage is considered the flagship trust of Edinburgh-based investment managers Bailey Gifford and is the UK's largest investment trust. As with any investment, please note capital is at risk. To find out more, please visit scottishmortgageit.com. Hello and welcome to The Advice Show. From financial advice to practice management, this podcast will give you UK and global insight into the financial planning profession. My name is James Fitzgerald, Senior Reporter at NMA, and today I am pleased to say I'm joined by the Principal of the Langcat, Mark Polson. Mark, welcome. Thanks, James. How are you doing? Not too bad. Not too bad. Thank you. So this week is huge for you guys, um, as you were yet again revealing the stats and findings and research from this year's edition of State of the Advisor Nation, which highlights your research into the UK financial advice profession. And if I do say so, is a must read each and every year. Ooh. Now, as this podcast will go live later in the week, many listeners will have uh, read it by the time they hear our dulcet tones on Friday. But uh, you know, this is a good opportunity to hear from yourself and get your own thoughts on the findings. So just to kick things off, you know, what has the response been like from advisors this year? Really good. I mean, everybody's very busy and everybody's pretty sick of online stuff, including online surveys and all that kind of stuff. And if you've read oh, any of the comments below articles on, on your pieces, James, or any social media stuff, there's no shortage of COVID-related things that the regulators asking firms to reply to and all yes. that kind of stuff. And everybody's a bit, bit hacked off, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so nonetheless, um, just around 450 firms gave up time um, to respond to um, our big omnibus survey this year. We we survey uh, an we call them our advisor panel. There's about 1,200 firms on it. And we ask them stuff all the time. But once a year, we do something really, really big. And it can take firms anything from half an hour to an hour to complete. So it's a lot. Mm. Um, That's a lot to ask people to do. And we're kind of humbled that people took that kind of time for jokers like us, you know. So um, we're really happy about that. And we'll get into it. But broadly speaking... I think the sector has come through this this incredibly weird period with flying colours, maybe stronger. Um, we're seeing a lot of the old dynamics that people assumed that advisors kind of were subject to in terms of, mm. you know, wanting to get out and just having a moan about this and that and the other. A lot of that's fallen away. And I mm. think what we're seeing is a a really kind of energized profession that's looking to the future and tons of really, really good stuff. Now, it is advisors, right? So they'll still have a moan. Yeah, yeah, like, always. Right, you know, everybody listening to this, we don't, don't ever stop um, <laughs> because um, uh, it's it's great to hear and we love it um, and it wouldn't be any fun if that wasn't going on. Um, but I honestly, I've been at this for... 20-something years working with advisor firms, and this is as bullish as I can remember the sector. So I think it's a fantastic time to be an advisor. Mm, very much so. And I was going to ask too, you know, you said um, yeah, the profession has been quite strong. And, you know, they were, advisors were, the advice sector as a whole was quite resilient in 2020 um, when things were getting very real. I mean, indeed, they still are, but, you know, back in the dark old days. 
What was, how did they fare last year? Any yeah. surprises? <clears throat> yeah, so we did this in October, November. That's when the field work happened. So people didn't quite have their, um, you know, their 21 hat on. Mm. Um uh, just in terms of exactly where they were going to be, but their outlook, um, I'm just uh, looking here, about um, about 75% of firms reckoned that their turnover would grow. Um, 25% reckoned they'd be over 20% up on the year, on the year before. And bear mm. in mind that revenues didn't fall away in the first year of the pandemic for firms. New business slowed down a little bit, so growth slowed. But it wasn't the case uh, that overall turnover tended to go down. Now, some of that's asset prices and, and you're taking a percentage of assets and that kind of stuff. Um, but nonetheless, it wasn't the case that uh, in 21, firms were feeling, well, we had our chips last year, it's going to stay pretty flat most people reckon they were going to grow and only a few i mean one to three percent reckon that they were going to um see a fall in the revenues so that's a you know a fantastically kind of healthy vote of confidence from advisors in their own businesses very optimistic yeah kind of but then you know i mean i mean the last few weeks maybe say something different um yeah. but um we're coming in the back of a, a long old kind of increase in, in asset prices here. Um, I guess interest rate changes and inflation changes are, might change some outlooks for 22. Uh, but for 21, you've got a strong fundamental there. Persistency for advisor firms in terms of how many clients do they lose? Well, mm. right, you've phone up 100 advisors and ask them, how many clients did you lose last month other than things like people dying or, or, or whatever, mm -hmm. right? But you lost as a client of your advice. It's virtually none. Yeah. So these businesses are incredibly stable, which is one of the reasons they're investable, by the way. Um, and uh, the we all know that there's a greater demand for advice, maybe than there ever has been. And there, there's advice gap stuff to think about in there. But mm. I'm just talking about core clients for advisors. So relatively affluent people probably... 40s, 50s, 60s. So, you know, this is where the money is demographically, uh, the liquid wealth anyway, and they're the people that are kind of heading in um, through the advisor's door. So, yeah, it's optimistic, but I, you know, I, I kind of think with some justification here, I think if, the you know, off the back of too difficult, of course, but potentially from a business perspective, quite good years um, for advisor firms, the 22 outlook will be quite interesting because I think we might be heading into choppier waters. And obviously, any advisors that put their portfolios into cryptocurrencies at the moment are feeling pretty grumpy. Um, yeah, yeah. But, but, but happily, there aren't any. So that's a good thing. <laughs> None that will admit it anyway. Well, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, in terms of, um, you know, you talk about resilience and recurring income as well. Is that down to good advice? Um, and not losing clients, I must say, as well. Is that down to, you know, good advice, good business structure, an acumen, um, or is it down to the kind of demographic of wealthy clients? Oh, it's, it's going to be a big mix of things. And, and you know, one of the sort of takeouts that we have from, from doing these big surveys is that to be reductive and to say that something is due to one thing in the same way that you might say, oh, advisors work this way, is always nonsense, right? It's mm. a, a, there's five and a half thousand firms and 
20 odd thousand however many it is RIs out there and nobody thinks the same way about anything right you put yeah. 10 advisors in a room you come out with 20 different opinions mm-hmm. um and that's cool right I, I mean we really enjoy that stuff but um i think um that there are some commonalities in here and i think that advisors certainly the type that would spend the time to respond to one of our big census yeah. surveys which is maybe quite a new model um kind of group right there's uh, not a lot of product flogging going on um their businesses for years now have been set up on the basis of long-term relationships not just in terms of how they charge but in terms of how they look after clients so yes there may be some transactional business from 15 20 years ago or take even 10 years ago but for at least a decade everybody that walks through the door is getting told this is how we work we work together in the long term we work at what your goals are we try to get you there all the stuff that every cfp and everybody that espouses the new model kind of way of thinking that's, that's just how it is right they don't even think mm-hmm. about it anymore it's just what they do and i think clients self-select so if you don't want that kind of relationship well there, there's plenty of other places you can go um so books from these kind of firms are increasingly stuffed full i think of clients who value that ongoing relationship and i suspect that's what it is it's got very little to do i'm going to suggest with investment performance Hmm. i think it's got relatively little to do for example with tax optimization that's an important thing to do right but it's got everything to do with the idea that as a client an affluent client with something to lose that i can outsource some of the heavy lifting um, mm-hmm. on an ongoing basis to somebody that's on my side as opposed to I've, I've been looking back a little bit recently funnily enough um, back to kind of 98 2000 2002 those kind of years just comparing and contrasting the industry um, and of course you you had that sort of dynamic if you were a, a client wondering where to go to get some support as to whether they were working for the provider or whether they were yeah. working for me and you don't got that anymore so this is you know a radically different landscape i think and that's a big change in 20 years it's huge man i mean you know the there's a there's an argument that says that the industry is kind of cyclical in nature I, mean, I guess most industries are in a way but in the last 20 years i'll go ahead and, and argue that we saw more disruption and more fracturing than maybe for 40 50 years previous maybe post-war mm. right um and some of that was driven by the regulator um, through RDR and then things like PS thirteen one the the uh, unravelled uh, unbundled platforms sorry um, pension freedoms absolutely rocket fueling the consolidation market um, and then providers not being able to cope with some of this stuff so hmm. we saw this amazing fracturing over that twenty year period and it kind of accelerated through the twenty years um, and through the cracks in the pavement that that created things grow right um and some of those things are really exciting some of them wither away and that you know the first wave of robos for example it was it was fun writing about them and they got really cross if you called them robos and that that was that was hilarious um, still do, to be fair well yeah the ones that are still yeah. around but to be honest the case is not made um for that kind of that kind of approach and mm. most that have survived in one form or another have had to look to do business in a different way so some of this stuff didn't happen but lots did and that idea that the advisor being the proxy of the client was now at the center of the universe and everything orbited 
um, that advisor who was kind of standing there arm in arm with her client. That's an astonishingly powerful thing. And it's mm. kind of irresistible, but and nothing to do with the research, right? But there is an argument that says as the industry kind of self-heals itself, there's a kind of capillary action that shoves out some of these difficult things. And with the reintegration of the sector, with um, providers redeveloping their own distribution capabilities, with platforms moving into fund management and into discretionary management and all these kind of things, you could argue that unless we're careful, we could head back to a more modern version of what we had before. Um, now, there's lots of checks and balances around mm. that you hope would stop some of that. And some of the bad practice in terms of commission and, and nasties clearly aren't going to be there. Um, but it's a really interesting time because the the incredible pace of deal making, of consolidation, not just in the advisory market, but in the supply side and the provider market as well, that's got to mean something, right? Yeah. It's, it's, it's not for fun. Um, so let's hope that we can continue to keep that idea that the client, and if they have an advisor standing with them, the advisor, are at the centre of the universe. And it's everybody's job to orbit them and make sure they're doing the best thing for them. And my, my main worry, actually, is that if the industry does kind of get back to something that we would recognise from 15, 20 years ago, that might not be the case. And to mm. see a regulator, and I mean, when we get back into the survey, moans about the regulator and all that stuff are, you know, you don't have to look very far for them, right? Um, but the idea that the regulator feels they have to put out a consumer duty, that they yeah. have to put in the rules that you have to do the right thing for your client, it's not a great vote of confidence in where things are going, right? So, no, no. Funny time. Well, I was going to ask too, before we get back into the research, I know you're chomping the bit to uh, get back into that, but when you talk about, you know, this being an interesting time for the industry now. Does private equity have anything to do with that, with the flurry of, you know, firm takeovers and that sort of thing? Is that a concern in this in this regard? Private equity is like a symptom. Um, private private equity money goes where it think it thinks it can make a return. So mm. I, I think um, it sees <clears throat> it sees opportunity. Um, candidly and having worked a bit with some of these private equity firms and, and chatted away with with many of them i i think they see a sector that could be run better um one guy said to me uh, i won't go too much into it but said look you know there's a lot of businesses out there in this sector that don't in our world that we don't think they have strong management so that's meat and drink to us because we'll come in, sort that out, um, get it looking more like a business and less like a kind of, you know, um, group of beautiful, unique people all doing lots of exciting things in their own way, get it sorted out, and then it's worth something. But the other reason I think that PE thinks there's um, an investable case here is the fundamentals, is the demographics. Um, of the risk transference from DB to DC, of the, the drift towards individualization, so we're all responsible for our own savings and our own retirements, but also the fact that there's a huge bulge um, of money and people in their 
late 50s to mid 60s moving through and these are the people who desperately desperately need um, assistance from professional financial planners at the most probably the most important time in their lives um, and then there's the transmission of those assets later on to think about as well so in mm. terms of like a really solid pool of money of value to get at they see that as well. So I don't think PE is the problem. I think PE is a symptom of the fact that maybe with a sector that is a bit fragmented, there's an opportunity for someone to put manners on it a little bit, as uh, mm. Irish folk might say. Um, and you can you can think that's, that's valid or not. You can argue it both ways out, right? Um, but I think that's behind what some of it is. It's great, strong fundamentals, great franchise for advice, more demand... Uh, than the sector can possibly deal with. So we need new models and all the advice gap stuff I'm sure you've done uh, or will do in the future on on the podcast. Um, but at the same time, an industry that can probably be sharper, can probably mm. run better. And I think one thing is, like we we all know this sector, right? And and it's a, it's a nice place to be. This is a nice sector to work in, I think. And the more these guys come in and put some very, very hard-edged worlds in place, might not feel so nice anymore. Mm. Might make some money, um, but we lose perhaps some of the collegiate stuff that, that we may have had in the past. And that's a, I guess that's a danger. Gotcha, gotcha. Now, let's get back into the research. Yeah. Um, so you're excited about that. And you mentioned before about the regulator. Any, uh, and we know advisors love to, to bash the FCA whenever they get, get a chance, um, and even if they don't have a chance. What, uh, what interesting findings in the research <laughs> so, about uh, what feedback have we got this year? So um, we asked, I'll, I'll give you two two snippets, right? So we asked, we asked people about what their biggest frustrations with the sector were. And um, the single biggest frustration was provider administration incompetence. Uh, and that kind of won out by a, a, a factor of a lot. Um, but mm. the second biggest one was regulation. Uh, third was software integration, by the way. But um, so... Regulation is a kind of, um, I don't know, an Aunt Sally or, or whatever you call it. It's, it's something that advisors can vent at, as, mm. as one does perhaps with um, one's parents uh, or something like that when, when you're the right kind of age. Mm. Um, it's easy to have a go um, at what appears to be prescriptive, nonsensical, top-down regulation. Um, and I'm, a, I'm in a bit of an apologist for the regulator sometimes, actually. I, I, I think... They, they're usually aiming at something worthwhile, um, but there's certainly friction in that relationship because that's a, that's not a great result. Um, if you're if you're looking at the advisory profession from, uh, I was going to say Canary Wharf, it's not Canary Wharf anymore, is it? Stratford. 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 Sunny Stratford down my neck of the woods. Oh yeah, uh, yeah. yeah. You, you sound just like you're from Stratford, mate. Um, <laughs> uh, so. Close. Yeah, pretty close. So, um, yeah, not a great result there. Um, a good fun thing, though, we um, we asked people about assessment of value reports. Um, so, obviously, these are cropping up uh, all the time from fund managers now and relatively 
few firms um, think they have any benefit at all. In fact, no firms, exactly 0% said they were using them extensively. Um, mm. Only 8% of firms said they use them sometimes, depending on quality. Uh, nearly two-thirds, 64%, uh, said, what a collective waste of time. Um, assessment of value reports were. But then we went on to say, what about the idea of other people um, completing assessment of value reports and we let people mm. say whether platforms or life codes or tech provider whatever um should have to do them as well uh mm. and um where we got 60 percent of firms just another 60 percent said it was either an excellent or a very good idea that the 60%. regulator should have to fill out its own assessment of value report <laughs> for advisors to point and laugh at uh so that was quite good fun so yeah. uh i think i think uh, any regulators listening to this lads if you if you want advisors to take you seriously i think you should do your own aov reports and send those out and let's see how we go I'm sure they'll take that under advisement and be very keen yeah, to do Yeah, I, I it's only a matter of time, right? Oh, yeah, of course, of course, of course. Um, now, let's move into, you mentioned providers as well. Um, you know, they've had a, well, since the pandemic started, <sighs> excuse me, we all went to lockdown. Um, you know, things weren't that easy for them and uh, perhaps some of them didn't have the right uh, processes and tech in place at the time. And uh, indeed, some still don't. Um how angry were advisors you know, over the past 18 months at providers um, for not uh, having their own house in order? Yeah, I mean, everybody cut everybody a bit of slack at the start, which I think mm. was good to see. Uh, there was an all-in-it-together kind of thing. Um, and then uh, the attitudes hardened after that. Um, there were very clear documented problems with some of the larger providers. Um, no need for, for names on, on this, I don't think. Everyone knows who we're talking about, who really, really, really kind of suffered. Um, mm. I think we didn't see it so much in this year's survey, anger about that, but we do do a quarterly dip um, of really anybody that will talk to us about um, whether platforms are, are serving them in the right way. Mm. And after a while, you could see uh, the scores dipping for those providers who were still having a tough time. Now, that tends to be larger firms. Um, so the the smaller specialists, um, guys like, I mean, they're not small, right? But but Parmenian came through mm. very well. So like True Potential came through very well. There Now, TP has a very, very motivated user base, so they, they tend to poll very well whenever you ask people about them. Um, premium, Fundment, P1, guys like this who are maybe not troubling the 100 billion of, of assets. So you could argue it's easier for them to do it. Um, but some of the big guys, I think everybody was okay while these guys were, were clearly flapping around. I remember one of the Aviva guys that we spoke to on our, our home games webinar saying, you try getting two and a half thousand laptops at the start of a pandemic all of which have to be built and sent out for people who are call center staff and not mm. necessarily sitting with a home office or, or whatever. You try it. See how you like it. It's not easy. Um, and I think there's some sympathy with that. What I think we definitely got to is that relatively poor performance in terms of service standards and, and uh, answer times and things like that. A year in, even nine months in, and people saying, oh, you know, pandemic's very hard. Like, that's, that's 
it's just no surprise now, right? We're used yeah, to this yeah. now. It has been a while. It's been a while. Mm. So, you know, it, it's a classic thing saying, we're experiencing higher than average call volumes. Please stay with us. I like, well, it's been higher than average every time I've called you for the last two yeah. years, which means the average is higher than you think it is. So would you hire some more staff, please? Mm. Um and the, that's kind of getting people's goat a little bit. The other thing that really cropped up in there, and we we see this a little bit in the in the stats this time, is propositional change to help um, with um, the effects of the pandemic, and also a reset going forward in terms of kind of modernity. So when we we ask about um, platform features and how important they are, well, basics like price and wrapper range and, and client reporting and things like that um, start, you know, are always going to start the charts, right? They're always going to be mm. top. But we saw, well, one, two, three, four, five, six, we saw kind of sixth um, highest priority digital paperless signatureless processes now. Um, I was going to ask uh, the next question about platforms because I saw in there that quite a few firms said they intended to change platform providers last year. Um, I was hoping to get your thoughts on that. Yeah, so... We do see quite a lot of willingness. You got to be. Uh, this is one of these ones where you got to be a little bit careful because it's easy to say that advisors think this way, and there's lots of advisors who are actually fairly happy with the platforms that they use. It doesn't mean that they're not going to have a moan about them, but they are broadly speaking okay. So, for example, over the last three years, two thirds of platforms are up in terms of overall favorability with firms, okay? So it's it's not the case um, that, you know, advisors are, are, are terribly, terribly cross about every platform that they use. Um, but it is certainly the case that lots and lots of firms have thought about uh, making changes to where they place platform business, and it's over half. Um, but what's kind of interesting isn't so much that they thought about it, it's the reason they thought about it. Mm. Um, and it isn't, because they're super cross, it is because of ongoing governance, i.e. it's a routine thing now to assess the stuff that you're using and make sure that it's right. And that's yeah. really, really important, I think. Only about 10%, 11% to be exact, said, yeah, we've thought in 2020, uh, 2021, sorry, um, we've thought about moving due to a poor existing experience. So although there's lots and lots of grumbles, not that many people are really, really looking to make a change. And for those that actually did make a change, only 15% of firms that we spoke to as part of this switched and um, switched for new flow, I beg your pardon, and moved mm. client assets. Um, and another 20% switched for new flow, but left client assets where they were. Uh, and everybody else basically decided to stick rather than twist. So it's there. Um, people are willing to move. They are willing to change, but not willy-nilly. And that, if you remember, when if kind of October, November, when we're doing this research, that's at a time when there, you know, there's a huge amount of stories going about, and you might have even had a hand in a few of these, James, oh, perhaps. Uh, perhaps. about platform changes and people kind of losing the rag uh, mm. about ownership stuff and all that kind of thing. And yet, I think broadly speaking, everybody calms down when they get back to the office. Mm -hmm. And you've got to remember that 
is got to be right for the client. And if it was suitable yesterday, it's probably suitable today. And that's yeah. really important. And it, it, it's, again, it's kind of nice. And one of the good things about the sector, and, and I, I guess it's something that NMA does, is gives people room to, to have a shout sometimes about these things that are going on. And that's interesting too. But in the main... In a cold light of day, when you've got to write a suitability letter um, that says, Mr. Client or Mrs. Client, I now feel that you should be over here. That's a lot of work. And mm. sometimes for a very, very marginal gain, if indeed any gain. So I'm, I'm really heartened to see firms considering it because they should. You should always question everything. You know, that's, that's how you get the best result. Um, mm. But when they're moving, they appear to be moving for the right reasons. Um, and that's, you know, um, really, really positive. There's another dynamic in there we didn't test so much, which is about if assets move as a result of a, uh, a purchase of the firm. Mm. But I think we know the answer to that. So a lot of switch activity that platforms see isn't so much as a result of ongoing due diligence. Um, it's as a result of, of acquisition and people then using the house platform and, and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And you mentioned client suitability there. Um, one point that's in the reports uh, and the research is you know, the relationship between advisor and platform in relation to um, platform segmentation. You know, how has that gone and does this bode well for client suitability? Well, first of all, I think um, the, prime, the kind of prime thing in advisors' minds is suitability because the second it's not, very bad things happen. And they happen quite quickly, actually. We saw that with something like British Steel, um, where other other factors were motivating the people that were involved and it, it got really ugly. Um, so I want to kind of pay homage to to the advisory profession and say, I, I think, you know, client suitability is first and everything else is a function of that rather than the other way around. Um, the other thing I think is, is something that if we go back to the platform market study from the FCA a couple of years ago, um, find it's broadly a pretty decent market. Now, we all get cross because it doesn't, you know, do this or they don't have online signatures for that or they didn't answer the phone or whatever else. But in the main, client's money is safe. It's properly looked after. The tax stuff is done right. Investment instructions are carried out for the most part correctly and remediated when they're not um, and so on and so on. So it's not a, a sector with big jeopardy for clients and that's that's yeah. quite important. Um, but in terms of um, kind of some of the uh, dynamics around usage, it, it's interesting to see how many firms have special deals, for example. Uh, so lots of firms reporting that they've um, got special deals in place. These are uh, much more common than than people might realise. Um, and predominantly from those who don't have special deals, a real rejection of the fact that they should exist at all. Um, and that uh, just because that advisor firm is big, why should my clients get a poorer deal? Um, so there's something in client outcomes there. Now, it's kind of at the margins. It's a basis point, you know, a few basis points here or there. Um, but that's kind of interesting as well. Um, and I guess in terms of um, where advisors are placing business, it is still the kind of dynamic that we know. There's a primary platform, there's a secondary platform, um, there might be a couple of those, and then there's legacy platforms. So the there used to be a bit more of a long tail, I think, where one platform got most of the flow 
and mm. then there were another couple maybe and then occasional cases were going here and there probably from people doing a favor to mates to be very honest yeah. um because you've known the bdm there for 20 years and you don't want to be rude um <laughs> and you know there's worse reasons for doing things as long as it's okay for the client um yeah. that seems to have fallen away to be honest and now the the primary um gets certainly 80 percent of the business probably a bit more than that um and the secondary picks up edge cases so that seems to be the main uh thing here now what's important not again not so much from the the quantitative work that we that we did at the end of the year but just from speaking to firms constantly is it still not the case that firms work as a firm individuals within firms have still have their own preferences and this is part mm. of the kind of professionalization or corporate as i corporatization if that's a, a word it is now right um yeah <clears throat> that um the the sector is going through uh and so we're starting to see greater concentration from firms as you know the fact that jane really likes working with platform a but davy likes platform b they kind of need to have a fight and decide what it is they're going to do as a firm mm -hmm. uh, rather than just as individuals. Um, and so you're starting to see the end of some of that. If you're in the long tail, sour news. Really, it's very, very hard um, to jack your way back into it. Um, you People are buying platforms now, in inverted commas. I know they're not actually buying them in that way. Um, but they're setting up relationships with platforms on a kind of properly strategic basis mm -hmm. and you see that again with with some of the new entrants that well newer entrants anyway that we've been talking about who have business models that are suited to that i was going to ask too um you know was there a clear favorite set of providers and platforms last year and on the other side of the coin you know who's on the naughty step <laughs> well look uh, you know, we're all friends. You don't have to reveal all. It's we're fine. we're it's all fine. friends here. Um, yes. But the names that you would expect to be right at the top are right at the top. So, um, as always, the small specialists who offer advisors a really, really personal experience tend to score highest. So there's a cohort of those, and the stars up there I mentioned earlier on: um, yeah. Parmenian, Premium, um, P1, Fundament. Um, so these are, um, you know, I think the largest of those businesses is six or seven billion in assets. Um, of the bigger providers, TP scores very well with its users, and that's a bit more of a, a kind of um, not a closed shop. You know what I mean? People that yeah, really yeah, yeah. really buy into a big proposition there. That's unsurprising, and exactly no points for guessing of the really big providers who the most popular one is um mm. and it's the only really big provider that scores really well and that's transact um most of the big names are kind of mid-table which i think they'd be fine with that's kind of what you expect from big generalist providers the naughtiest ones tend to be those that have had big problems with replatformings in the last mm. few years um, but even that's coming round now. So guys like, um, I'm really sorry, Aegon and Aviva, um, who you know haven't had their trouble to seek, as we would say up where I live, um, are seeing improving scores now, doing better. Yeah. Um, and uh, the probably the naughtiest of, uh, uh, in terms of um, service scores and so on, James Hay at the moment. Um, but that business about to go through absolutely radical transformation. So mm, um, I think, you know, the, you can't 
argue with it, it bad scores and they're, they're not acting on our scores right now they're fully yeah. aware of what's going on um but uh a, a business that's been you know wanting to make significant change for a long time now getting into it so you know it's it's not bad overall the picture's pretty decent um yeah. most people are starting to do better and better but if you want one standout big business still transact yeah Perfect. And yeah, I suppose the magic of recording this on a Monday before the uh, before it's released and publishing it on a Friday is, you know, advisors will like, get to read all about it anyway beforehand. So there it is. It covers our backside, so that's okay. That's the main now, thing. Yeah. <laughs> now, finally, just to just to finish off, um, you know, what was your biggest takeaway from the research? Last um, Gosh, what shocked you? What surprised you? Here's one for me, um, because I've been I'm so interested in the dynamics around the sector, right? I've, I mean, I'm interested mm. in the detail too, but it, watching the industry break apart and come back together, and the, the consolidation activity that's going out there, going on out there, um, and, and a couple of things turned up uh, that I thought were absolutely fascinating. Um, when we asked firms when they were last approached by a consolidator, um, 40%, four out of 10 firms, they said they had been approached within the last week Oof. by a consolidator. That's a lot, right? Pain, That's a yeah. lot, yeah. Um, but when we ask firms uh, about their business ownership and where they see themselves in five years' time, um, over... Uh, over 80% either say we'll just be as we are or we've got it sorted with an existing succession plan. Yeah. So these are people that are not looking to be acquired and actually... 80%? 82% to be uh, exact, if we're being exact. Only 9% of firms, and bear in mind that our sample is maybe skewed to a certain kind of firm, but mm. only 9% of our respondents said that they expected to be owned by a consolidator in five years' time. But 40% had been phoned within the last week <laughs> by a consolidator. So... Something's rotten in the state of Denmark there, and I've got a yeah. funny feeling it might be quite a few disappointed BDM types from consolidators. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm making, sure they'll live. Making a lot of phone calls, um, and it makes you it makes you wonder, you know, is there an end date for this gold rush of advisor consolidation? And I just thought that mismatch between the two was really, really interesting. Um, you know, every firm that we read about that's joined, whichever firm it may be, um, there's another thousand that haven't. This CityWire podcast is sponsored by Scottish Mortgage Investment Trust. Scottish Mortgage invests in some of the world's most promising and exceptional companies, from healthcare breakthroughs to electric vehicles to a green energy revolution. Scottish Mortgage takes stakes in businesses shaping our future economy and society. As with any investment, capital is at risk. 